Peter, thanks a lot for coming into Judge McCall podcast. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, absolutely. Uh, you know, you are um, you spend a lot of time with artificial intelligence. From what I read, um, you actually work on your second company now, monetizing research that you've done over the years in artificial intelligence. Maybe you can help us understand that a little bit better. And what is kind of your secret sauce? What worry? What are you specializing in? Yes. Um, so th there's a little bit of history here. I uh, started as an electronics engineer, so you know, really understanding electronics and computers uh, from the hardware hardware side. Um, then I fell in love with software, and my electronics company turned into a software company. Uh, developed an ERP software system. Um, that company became very successful. We grew very rapidly and actually did an IPO. So that, that was great. Um, but when I exited that company, I had time to really think about, you know, what big project do I want to tackle next? And, and the thing that struck me is that that software is really dumb. You know, it, uh, and, and I'm very proud of my own software, but still, it doesn't have any common sense. It doesn't learn. It doesn't reason and, and so on. So, so that's really what got me started on my journey of uh, artificial intelligence to figure out how we can build intelligent software. So I, I actually took off five years to study uh, different aspects of intelligence, to really deeply understand what is intelligence? What are we looking for in, in AI? Um, and, you know, I looked, I started at philosophy, epistemology, theory of knowledge. How do we know anything? What is reality, you know? And, uh, Sounds like a deep you know? dive you took there. Yeah. Right. How do we know Absolutely. anything? And, um, you know, what do IQ tests measure? So I went into psychomet psychometrics and uh, cognitive psychology, uh, yeah. understanding how do children learn, uh, you know, what experimentation had been done on animal intelligence and how that differs from, from our, our intelligence. Um, and, and, and generally doing research on what work had been done in AI over the decades. And uh, during that, that journey, I um, you know, got a much better understanding of what we're looking for in intelligence. And that brought me to a point where it was rather odd looking at what people were doing in the field of AI compared to you know, the original vision of artificial intelligence. When, when the term was coined some 60 plus years ago, um, people really wanted to build a thinking machine, a machine that can think and learn and reason the way humans do. And, and they thought they could do this, you know, like in a few years they would achieve that. Now, of course, it turned out to be much, much harder. So over the decades, what happened with AI is it, it moved away from this, this, this initial vision and ideal and goal um, to narrow AI. So basically, people started saying, hey, if we can just take one particular problem that humans can solve and we can automate that, then we've got AI. And, you know, Deep Blue is a perfect example of that. You know, the world chess champion at IBM built this, you know, very powerful chess playing machine. Um, but that's narrow AI. And over the years, what, I, what the conclusion I came to is it's really very, very different because what you're doing is you're taking a problem and you're using human intelligence to figure out how to use a computer to solve the problem. And then you write the program with really the human solution. 
and, yeah. and it's the intelligence actually resides in the designer of the program and not in the program itself. So we yeah. really lost our way on, on, on AI over the decades that it's become narrow AI. Yeah, people feel very, very proud about the progress that we've made in the last couple of, I'd say, 10 years, um, where we finally have a relatively abstract way to solve narrow AI problems. You, you kind of diminished them a little bit and said, well, this is actually not what we set out in the 60s, right? When artificial intelligence first came about as a, as a term. But it's something that you, you literally just download from GitHub, prepare a data set, let it run, and it spits mm -hmm. out an answer. And that's pretty amazing, right? There's this example from, um, I think it's the lane-changing algorithm for self-driving cars, which was mm -hmm. 10, 15 years ago, something that would take 20 engineers and a lot of research, and it still had a pretty big um, error rate. And now you download it from GitHub, and it works right away. You just you just connect to the proper images. Um, so the, the, the progress that we have with this relatively generic model in narrow AI seems to be pretty stunning. And I think what, what the, the, the idea is to now is that we eventually have enough of these building blocks that we can put together the, the 1960s vision of a thinking computer, right? I think this is the, the at least the, the, the hope right now. And um, when we talk about the singularity, something that we're gonna see in the next 20 years, do you feel like we have to we redesign what we see so far we have we need a different approach to get to this next level of ai yes i absolutely do and um it's obviously uh not a simple topic and quite controversial because you know literally trillions of dollars are at play with deep learning machine learning you know the specialized hardware that's being designed i mean you know they're multi-multi-billion dollar companies uh, riding on the success of deep learning, machine learning. But uh, in my view, this is not artificial intelligence uh, in, in the form that was in, envisaged uh, at all. It's a very, very powerful tool that can be used, but the intelligence still resides essentially uh, in the um, data scientist uh, I mean, yeah. it's it's non-trivial. You know, people make it sound well. We you know we just build this model and it can do do things. Uh, but if you actually start working with these systems, it's non-trivial to decide what what data inputs to have to massage the data and to build you know figure out what kind of architecture and what model will will actually work. Now, of course, there are automated systems that might iterate through hundreds or even thousands of different models and try them. So, but it's it's a it's a dumb process. It's basically you know by by trial and error. But let me go back a, a little bit and talk about what what I think uh, we need or, or why why we need to do something fundamentally different to achieve that original vision of having a thinking machine. So. Um, the conclusion of, of, of the research in 2001, I then started my first uh, AI company, initially in research phase. Um, I had about 10 people that I hired, and we basically took the ideas that I had and started experimenting around with them. Uh, at that same time, 2001, um, myself and two other people, we actually coined the term artificial general intelligence, or AGI, and wrote yeah. a book on the topic. And um, that was really to... to uh, say we want to get back to the roots of, of AI, to have machines that can think and learn and reason. And uh, just to jump ahead a little bit now, um, close the circle, um, deep learning, machine learning um, have some 
severe limitations or um, let me let, let me talk about what AI, what what intelligence requires so if you interact with a person and you regard them as intelligent you you expect them to to have certain characteristics you expect them to be able to learn or what an AI is called one-shot learning you know if they tell you something you expect that uh, you know, if you tell them something you expect that person to remember it and to use that knowledge immediately not to need thousands of examples. If you have a child, you can show them uh, one picture of a giraffe and they'll be able to recognize, you know, giraffes, toy giraffes, pink giraffes, or whatever, yeah. or an elephant yeah. or whatever. So this one-shot learning is, is, is one thing you expect uh, a system to be able to do. You expect them to have deep understanding of what you're saying. So if there's some kind of an input you get that the implications are, are, are clear to that person, you know, why are you saying it? Um, theory of mind, what knowledge do you have, uh, what, was, what has gone before. So reasoning is involved, one-shot learning is involved. And um, these statistical systems that work with huge amounts of input data basically just take a snapshot of all the input data and create a model from that. But that model is essentially a read-only model. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't learn, it doesn't reason. And that's inherent in the in the approach uh, of, of deep learning, machine learning. Yeah, it's certainly certainly just one approach. We, we feel like well, I think everyone was surprised how well it works in certain areas, right? And so it's it's really taking off. And we we've seen this from the search engines, especially. I think they we see this with Google and Facebook. They they sit on this massive trove of data. They didn't really know what to do with it. And so deep learning really fit into this paradigm that they use all this data and try to extract some knowledge from it. Now the real world doesn't have such well-designed um, data sets. We, we this data is all over the place, and it has different different um, preconditions to it that we don't really see in the data. And now that's different on Facebook and Google. And I think this is where most of the innovation was the last um, 10 years. What I really like is how you say, well, you know, the, the problem is actually that a lot of these preconditions have been set in motion by the designer. So the design is, 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 is the only intelligent part. And I see this when we, we think about ourselves, right? So when we are born with a one gigabyte of data, right? This is what the, the DNA is. But all these really difficult models, how we learn how to see the world when we are a year old, two years old, how we, how we recognize a cat, how we recognize a giraffe, as you just said, just said with very few examples. Now, we don't come with like tons of gigabytes and gigabytes of terabytes, petabytes of data. We come with a very small instructions on how to build these models, right? How our brain eventually figures out how to build these models. So someone must have created this evolution of the designer, right? right. And that's maybe where the real intelligence is. Intelligence is maybe it's, and we, we see this with machines, the, the obviously the challenge is once they, they figure out a working model, it's immediately being distributed to all the machines that are connected, right, through the internet. And we, we, the, 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 uh, the fear is currently that a lot of people feel, well, once a machine, we get to this point that they can either design themselves or we help them, right, with more advanced models, but they immediately, once they figure something out, every single machine on the planet has that knowledge. So they will escape, they have this escape velocity to an intelligence, even if we start with more design and you know it looks really clumsy right now, they have this escape velocity that can quickly bring them off this planet. And there's very little for us we can do, we can't follow them. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the intelligence explosion of, of, you know, when a machine becomes smart enough to, uh, or capable enough to redesign itself and improve itself, uh, I, I think, uh, I, I believe that is, is a very realistic scenario. So I, I do believe that will, will happen. Um, I'm not sure at what the theoretical maximum of intelligence is. Um, you know, how intelligent can a system become um, before it becomes sort of self-defeating in a way? And, and what I mean by that is you couldn't just have a computer that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and becomes smarter and smarter because, of course, you have the speed of light. You have, you know, physical limitations of, of what it yeah. can do. And you have a combinatorial explosion of, um, uh, you know, of, of, of scenarios you, you want to analyze. So... Um, there's probably an optimum size of intelligence in in a, in a single unit, uh, and yeah. then you need you know cooperation be between different different units. Um, you see, the total limit of, of of energy available in the universe is an absolute yeah. limit, and it's not that far out, right? I mean, we right. can count right. all the stars, and then you have the amount of, of energy available. Right, but I mean, at at the moment where we are right now, um, I mean, I, yes, one can talk about this this sort of future and how crazy that is when you have computers that um, that can redesign the design themselves improve their own design uh, quicker than humans can and whatever the f physical limitations are and actually building the hardware and so on but right now we are such a long way away from this i mean when you look at as you know as you say it's it, it's just shocking how well these deep learning machine learning systems actually function um, if you give them the right amount of data, you know, what you can achieve. So um, speech recognition has, you know, improved tremendously. Uh, image recognition has uh, uh, improved tremendously. And unfortunately, targeted advertising, you know, we're, which is really driving the deep learning, machine learning um, yeah. uh, train, you know, that, that has, uh, you know, improved a lot. You mentioned that, you know, Google search has improved... I don't really see that so much. I mean, before deep learning, go back 10 years, we didn't have deep learning, machine learning. I don't really see that my Google searches are, uh, I, I, you know, have, have any more understanding of what I'm looking for. Um, so I don't Mine know. Mine have gotten really good. I don't, I don't know if this is the customization. I compare it with yeah. Bing from time to time. So I have two browsers and I do like a specific comparisons. And I feel it's, if it's just pure luck, um, but I'd say 90% of the time, it's exactly what I wanted, and that's you know relative. These are these are not necessarily the the main sites. Right, there are the twenty yeah. different sites on the internet. Mm -hmm. I get most of the traffic. I'm very happy with Google. I don't know if this personalization feature or if that's something that they've just yeah. they, other because they have bigger click click data than anyone else. It's it's far well, away for me in that in that long tail compared to me. Yeah. Um... Yes, uh, I mean it, it. It is by far the most powerful search engine. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not actually familiar with how much deep learning, machine learning they use in their search now. Um, yeah. You know, whether that has improved their, their search. Maybe it has. I, I don't know. But I, I think fundamentally, deep learning, machine learning, or statistical systems are not going to get us to, to true intelligence be, because they lack these fundamental requirements of intelligence of being able to learn interactively uh, to use context and to be able to reason and yes. you know and that's sort of inherent in the approach i mean people 
you know, there's some research being done where they try and um, get one-shot learning working in, uh, in, in these networks and that. But it, it, it's really the data representation, the knowledge representation is all wrong. It's a black box. Uh, you can't, yeah, I mean, they're just a, a, a huge amount of in, limitations. And I think yeah. one of the models that I find quite useful is um, when DARPA uh, presented, uh, gave a presentation a few years ago where they spoke about the third wave of AI. Yeah, and, you that's know, why you mentioned it, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the three waves of AI. And I, I think that to me seems, seems to really... Um, uh, capture what what I think the problem is. So the first wave is basically, um, you know, logic-based systems that that were uh, prominent in the 70s, 80s, and, and 90s, uh, expert systems. But you know, really, uh, like Psych would fit into that, uh, mainly logic logic logic-based uh, systems. Um, and then, of course, we've now had this revolution of machine learning, deep learning, where they finally figured out how they could use neural networks and make them work, you know, whereas over the decade, <laughs> they couldn't really yeah. get neural networks to do um, yeah. too many useful things. And and then about 10 years ago, we had this breakthrough when uh, companies with a lot of data, a lot of computing power um, could, you know, suddenly make make these things uh, work really, really well in, uh, in, in certain applications. Well, one, one thing, and I think this fits into this breakthrough, when we, when we look at GPT-3, which isn't a crazy difficult model, right? It took about 20 million to, to actually run. And it's it's something that's a relatively small team. Like it's not exactly a Manhattan project, let's put it this way, right? So okay. it's, it's it's a limited team. And it took basically data that's available from, from the web. So it's relatively public data. It's not super secret. Right. And what happened to is that it come, came up with a lot of, and I have, I have uh, this, uh, you can need a developer ID to use it. So I've been playing with it for the last couple of weeks and it's been out since July. It doesn't know what it's doing, right? But it, it's a bit, it, it's throwing darts, but it's throwing darts in a matter that you feel like, whoa, that's really good, right? It writes HTML code, it writes some, some other codes, it, it can create essays. It's kind of on the level, I'd say, were early stage teenagers. Now teenagers, granted, sometimes they have understanding of what they're doing, often they don't because they don't care, right? But it's it's if a 12 year old write an essay or an 11 year old, it kind of looks like open AI. And sometimes open AI advances beyond that stage. So I feel even if it's accidental and even if it's pure statistic, which is, is which it is, it doesn't really know what's going on. The results are pretty stunning. I, I would disagree. I I, I think they it's they really like parlor tricks. Um, and and they nowhere near twelve year old in terms of learning or understanding or, or or anything like that. And I think it's fundamentally the wrong architecture. I mean, what we're seeing now is if you throw ten times as much data at it and computing power, you know, if you use the electricity of Manhattan, you know, to to build these new new models, the yeah. improvements are becoming smaller and smaller. And the the thing is, there is still no no learning, no reasoning, no understanding. If you try to, yes, they look impressive, you know, uh, because the patterns that it outputs are, are obviously sophisticated patterns that, that humans have created, you know, what, what, what the model was built on. But yeah. you try to have, um, you, tr you try to use, I mean, one of the tests would be to try and use it commercially. And, um, you know, where you can't just have random babbling that impresses you, you know, that, 
oh wow, this this you know this is could be poetry or it could be a, a rock song or it could be a badly written essay by something. You know, it doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah. as soon as you want something that actually makes sense and that you can rely on, the, the system is completely lost. Uh, you, you well, it's, it's, I'd say it's ninety nine percent. It's it's correct. So they they, they did this um, study. I think it's a white paper came out a couple of weeks ago. Using OpenAI, they did these summaries of other white papers or longer text, so even podcasts. Um, so this is a TLDR on right. Reddit. And what the machine did was way better in, in that study. Well, I wouldn't say way better, but it was slightly better than what human editors would do. Mm. And that was pretty stunning. And it was rated by other humans, right? So the humans in the end rated what was actually the better summary. And it came out that OpenAI writes better summaries than other crowdsourced good editors on Reddit. And that doesn't mean it works 100%, right? It's like this right. 1%, 2% where it's complete garbage and it has no idea what's going on. And it doesn't have any idea of the other 99%. But it's still pretty cool. For And as you said earlier, it's still a kind of a sense of a narrow AI. The question obviously is, how do we scale up and how, we, how do we generate this understanding? How, how do we get to this this Maybe it's a bit of a question of a free will where you, you, you realize that there is a time horizon. There is something that I want, me as a, as a consciousness, right? I want something. How do I get there? How do I define these goals? There's lots of things involved, but how do I actually make sense of the world around me? How do we get there? Is, is there is, is something you're working on right now? Is there models out there that, that can do this? Yeah, so, uh, yeah. so to com complete, you know, going back to DARPA's third wave, obviously we've spoken about the first wave and the second wave, so I yeah. believe that there's some importance in the third wave. Uh, so when DARPA talk about the, third, the second wave being statistical systems, you know, and yeah. uh, no, I do not believe that there is um, a direct path. It doesn't matter how much processing power, how much, you know, uh, data you throw at it, you're not going to get this, this real, real intelligence. Um, you know, yes, you can cherry pick certain applications where, where the system is, is good. But I mean, we've heard claims of, you know, that um, natural language understanding is better than humans or that 99% or something. It's complete garbage, you know. There, there is no understanding, you know, and, and you can, if you have the right tests, you can, you can test that very quickly and tease it out. But talking about the third wave, so what is the third wave? The third wave is basically inherently systems that are designed from the ground up to, um, to have the components required for intelligence so that they have interactive learning, they have deep understanding, they have the ability to reason, and they have common sense. So what do you what do you need to to do that? Now each of these terms are obviously quite complex to you know to un, unpack. Um, now the third wave, the, the way I, I see it is it's essentially a cognitive architecture. So you you know you 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 say well we we have to represent data in a certain way that is not just a black box uh, or that is scrutable that the system can explain why it's doing things, it can reason about things, and it can learn interactively. So I think that's, that's what you need. It's fundamentally uh, a different architecture. It's very tempting to, to have this sort of silver bullet, you know, to say you have this small algorithm, few hundred lines of code, and that's all you need. And then you just throw a lot of data and computing power and it'll magically create, um, you know, human level intelligence. 
Um, yeah. But I don't. I think the evidence is that that's not the path to to human level to yeah. generally. We just haven't found it yet, Peter. We just yeah. haven't found it yet. Um, well, because it's 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 quite stunning. And I read your essay about free will you, um, that you put out a couple of years ago. And it's stunning. I think this is very much related to me. And correct me if you see it differently. Mm -hmm. Free will is this element that we, we instinctively believe in, right? We as humans always think we have free will. We, we make the decision we are in control. But there's obviously a lot of problems with that. A is if you give a certain kind of information to the subject, it will change their opinion, almost guaranteed. I mean, there's certain edge cases, but if you have the opportunity to present certain kinds of maybe biased information for a certain amount of time, six months undisturbed, someone will change their mind or pretty much anything, even their, 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 their core beliefs of their, their individuality. The other problem is there's so much stuff that streams into our unconsciousness and only very few things actually make it to the consciousness. So there's even more information that someone inside of us already makes a lot of um, decisions about if we should even worry about that. Then there's this whole other topic that you also write about is that the body and the nervous system, they predetermine a lot of our decisions, probably 99.9%. So then the question becomes, are we basically, are we already like a, a, a machine that's a carbon machine um, that someone else maybe designed who had exactly the same problem can we use can be used this biological system that, that we are that seems to be we, we haven't decoded it yet or we we have the DNA but we don't know how it actually translates itself into how our organs for instance work how our brain works and how our consciousness works do you feel we learn this from biology or we, we we have to redesign and find it from scratch okay a, a lot of different things here so uh, I think talk about free will on, on the one hand, and, and then on the other hand, what do we need to um, get to AI, if I sort of the, the tail end of what you were talking about. Um, so let me, let me talk about the second one first, and we get uh, back to free will. So the second, second one, I, I don't believe that we need to look at biology in particular uh, to build AI. Uh, and, and sort of my favorite comparison there is you know, we've had flying machines for over 100 years, uh, but we're still nowhere near reverse engineering the bird. So it's basically, you know, learning something from nature and, you know, what birds do, but that's ultimately not what built flying, the, the most effective flying machines. Because as human engineers, we have very different strengths versus evolution. And we have very different materials that we're working with, you know, um, on, on that. And the same is true for, uh, for building thinking machines. The, the materials we're working with are very different from what, you know, evolution had building our brains. And the, again, en engineering, us as engineers, as human engineers, very different from uh, a blind process of, of, uh, of evolution. So... I think we can get inspiration from from biology and certainly how our, our brain or our mind works, um, but I, I don't think that um, you know evolution or biology is is the answer to get to uh, to AI. Um, going back to free will now, uh, the topic of free will is actually uh, really quite difficult and usually. Um, sort of people go off on a, on a track on, on, on free will. It's, it's something that obviously, have, you know, has 
strong elicits strong emotions in people. You know, yeah. if you say you don't have free will and or you do have free will and and so on. But people usually don't stop and really think what the definition is, what they actually mean by free will. Uh, and then often the, the, the flip side of free will is determinism, you know. So I think most discussions um, about free will are not, are really off the mark, missing the mark, uh, because they don't spend enough time explaining what they mean by free will and what, what their understanding is of determinism, if that's sort of the, 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 the counter argument. I mean, if we're talking about free will, that you could make decisions irrespective of evidence, irrespective of knowledge, irrespective of anything, uh, like, what's the point? I mean, then it's just like random, you know, random decisions. And that's not what we mean by, by free will. I think the, the useful, um, we, we need to go back even one step and say, why do we even have this concept of free will? Why is it an important concept in, in humans? And that gets us closer to the mark because why it is a, a, an important concept is personal responsibility. If we didn't have something, and let's call it volition, you know, free will has such a lot of baggage, such an emotional, you could almost not use the word without yeah. triggering a whole That's lot true. of you know, beliefs <clears throat> that, that go yeah. with it. So if you say, why do we have something that we call free will or volition or whatever? Well, the, the reason this concept comes about, I think, is um, of, of personal responsibility. You know, are you as a person responsible for the decisions that you make? Yeah. I think that's, that's really, and, and or to what degree are you responsible uh, uh, for that? So, but isn't it just an illusion? Isn't isn't this? We our mind holds us responsible for it. So I agree with you. But isn't that just in the end an illusion? Because most of the data stream that we are exposed to, and all these things that happen before us, we have no clue how they happen, why they happen, all the nature, all the entropy. Right. We we don't see it. We don't really interact with it. And we just keep up this idea of free will, which is really built into us as a, as as you say, as an emotional. Um, need almost a craving that we have, but isn't it enough that we have this illusion? It doesn't really matter if we have free will or not. Yeah. So uh, you said you read one of my uh, uh, essays, free will essays. I I actually um, wrote the first one where I argued that free will exists and it's compatible with uh, determinism. So the compatibilist, uh, and I found that, but you know, half the people I spoke to just couldn't get on the same page. You know, they just uh, basically said, no, there is no free will. And I, I couldn't get anywhere. So I wrote a second essay a few, uh, a few years ago, uh, where I say, we don't yeah. have free will, but we have something better. Yeah. So that, that was sort of depending on what the perspective you take and what, what your interpretation of free will is, uh, the explanation, I think the answer of it is, you could really start from both ends. You know, for one kind of explanation of free will, you can say, yes, we have free will. Uh, or for, for another explanation, you can say, no, we don't have free will. You know, fine. So we, we're on the same page. We can agree. And now we can talk about what is it that makes us different from animals or to what extent are we different from animals if you can agree yeah. that animals are not responsible for their 
for the, for their actions to the same yeah, like the same. narrow AI, right? You and could say that an, that an animal is basically like a narrow AI. It depends on what animal we're talking about. Let's, right. well, let's not yeah. use a mammal. Let's, let's use yeah, yeah. Right. a bird, maybe, right? So they have yeah. some specific solution that work for them. But they, from our understanding at least, there's no language, there's no civilization, obviously, and there's no, they, they don't have any understanding of the future. So right. for them, free will is not something they have to put resources in because it makes no, no difference, right? You have to first figure out there is a future and then you have to figure right. out, okay, what do I do about this future? And maybe some primates have some understanding about the future. Well, I don't know how much research you've done, but that's about it, right? So that's very few, and for me, that's kind of a mystery. If consciousness and this understanding of the future is such a great tool made as the apex predator why didn't anyone else at least go pretty far along to that travel that we have done that's kind of a mystery to me because machines will have to do will go along the same track right they will go where the animals started and become yeah. human life when, when you say uh, what is a mystery to you that nobody what do you what do you mean that no human well i find it i find it a mystery that there's only one specific part of the primates that developed all these advanced functions. And we feel they are pretty advanced because at least they manifest themselves. We are changing yeah. the planet right now, so maybe we're terraforming the planet. So it is definitely a big deal. And only very few primates, we are the descendants of it, and we, we can trace down our ancestors, literally one couple in Ethiopia. Yeah. Only they developed this and nobody else. I found this quite strange. Well, I mean, you know, we are here as humans uh, that evolution um, you know that evolutionary path got us to where we have that that understanding. Uh, we have that high-level intelligence, and in fact, my studies of intelligence pretty much pinpointed what it is that makes us different from animals. And and in 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 brief, it's our ability to uh, form abstract concepts and to form abstract concepts of abstract concepts, so that we have this sort of unlimited. You know, one, once you can form an abstract concept of another abstract concept, then you, you can go anywhere with that. And, and yeah. you know, that's, that's the unique ability. But in, in evolution, clearly there was a trade-off in terms of uh, having that very flexible brain required a much longer nurturing uh, period, you know, and uh, obviously in the wild it's uh, difficult to, to survive. Whereas if you pre-programmed, you know, of what works and what doesn't work, um, yeah. then that's evolutionary much, much easier. So, yes, we, we're the first species that has developed this ability. And they, it seems therefore, suspicious we are... to me. So suspicious. And for us, it happened, I'd say, 200,000 years ago, maybe 300,000. Yeah. But it didn't, it's a long, relatively long time, you know, where you can say long or not long. But it seems to be decent enough that another species would have caught up to us, you know, that someone would have invented fire, the, the chimpanzees. Yeah. Really, it, it doesn't seem like such a big deal. But yet... It's not even in the cards right now, so I find this really weird. Okay. Right? Maybe, maybe, maybe it's just randomness, right? But but it it seems like, and we know that evolution works in two ways, right? Or in many different ways. But one is you copy what works, so you see something there and then you learn it because it's so much easier instead of re reinventing the wheel. But none of the other primates could learn this from us. I find this really odd. Well, maybe that's I mean just a side story. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Uh, okay. But it leads me to how do we replicate this, right? So if the animals can't replicate it, so if it's such a divine, unique thing, well, maybe divine is, a, is not the right word. And, and, you know, I don't know if you remember 100 years ago, a lot of researchers, brain researchers said we can never build the brain because it's just so complicated and ooh, it's not going to happen. And then, you know, now we have a lot of understanding about the brain. Now that we know exactly how it works, but we found out a lot of stuff. 
so I think we have to get, isn't, isn't that something where we look at how animals work and how they don't work, when, where we can figure out maybe where did this last step in evolution come from? How can we give this to machines? Right, I think this is the step we are talking about these days. Yes, ex exactly. And and this this is you know what what I've I've pinpointed the difference is is this uh, ability to form abstract concepts. That yeah. that really is the key. And um, you know you need you need an AI to be able. Right now we don't have AIs. The current crop of AIs don't really work conceptually. They don't form concepts. Uh, yeah. Never mind forming abstract concepts. It's just not the way the, the direction of the research and the focus, you know, where all the money is, is is right now. But you basically need to build an AI that can form concepts. And yeah. um, once you have that, it's actually a relatively simple step from there to go. Uh, and I mean, from an evolutionary timescale to go from mammals to humans was a, a blink of an eye. It was actually, you know, very, very, uh, very quick. It wasn't billions or even millions of years. Um, so th the difference was basically to use that machinery that allows you to form first level concepts to use that machinery and modify it that you can now form concepts of concepts. Yeah. And, you know, and then concepts of concepts of concepts. And that is really the unique ability that we have. And that is the key to high level or human level intelligence is, is the ability to think an abstract to form abstract concepts and to think an abstract concept. Do we have a mathematical approach to this? Do we know how we can? And we know that that math is basically an extremely abstract concept out of reality. Right. But do we have a, a mathematical set of functions that describes it, where we can say, "Well, this is this is the this is the problem," and we can here's a set of algebra, and I can I can this algebra once. I apply it, see my hypothesis works, kind of like we, 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 we discovered physics, right? So we, we, we played around with the numbers long enough that we figured out the equations. Is that something that's, that's anywhere close to, to, one extent, to some extent, yeah. you know, uh, when we come up with these, with these equations, we don't really know what we are after, right? So, so sometimes it's a representation of what we see we want to prove, but sometimes these equations kind of like, I'm, 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 I'm having some of the, the more modern math in mind, we have the equation, but we don't really know what it means. We can prove they are right, but we don't really know what that means for physics. Right. Uh, so, no, I don't think uh, mathematics is the right tool. I mean, it's obviously uh, related to programming and necessary for, for programming, but it's, it's much more discipline like uh, organic chemistry, you know, uh, for example, where yeah. you run out of steam with mathematics and, uh, you know, you, you, you just have bits and pieces that you can put together, but the complexity is such that uh, mathematical tools uh, really aren't, aren't powerful enough uh, for that. So I don't think mathematics is, is the, the answer to solving the problem. Um, it, in, in fact, this, this brings up quite an interesting point. Uh, on my, my project, so uh, in 2001, I started you know, the first AI company to, uh, to turn that sort of the ideas that I came up with over my five-year research into actual prototypes and, you know, we experimented it with. We then came up with an, a cognitive engine that we could commercialize. So in my first company, I commercialized it in the call center space. Um, but the, the point I want to make here is I found that the, the, the people that I hired, I had some brilliant engineers over the years that, that um, I've, I've hired, but some of them really couldn't get on, on the right page as far as AI, the kind of AI 
that we want to have because yeah. they have a strong mathematical logic background and they try to shoehorn everything into you know strict logic formal logic mathematics or statistics um, the, the people that I found could really help help me make progress in uh, building AI are people who are comfortable with cognitive psychology. So the reason for that is I think you first need to understand, have a, an understanding what intelligence is, you know, what learning is, how people learn, the sort of the, yeah, cognitive psychology, basically developmental psychology and, and, and uh, understanding how the mind works, not the brain, how the mind works. Um, yes. I think that's an important component. And often cognitive psychologists aren't good logicians or programmers, and good programmers yeah. aren't good cognitive psychologists. So I think, you really, go along, yeah. I think you really need to have both aspects. You need to understand the problem from a cognitive psychology point of view, from understanding intelligence and what it entails. And then, of course, you need to have the, the technical knowledge to be able to build systems that can, 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 can implement that. So, no, I don't, I don't think, uh, again, it comes back to the sort of, we all love to have a magic silver bullet, you know, a, a formula, an algorithm, a mathematical model that we can say, oh, we've, we've cracked AI, you know, we've, we've got the code. Now, all we have to do is, you know, run it on a computer, uh, expose it to the world, and hey, presto, AI is solved. Uh, I don't see that that's going to happen at all. Yeah, it's, it's kind of this battle between the hard sciences, right, math, physics, or STEM topics, and then on the other side, we have psychology and we have the humanities, where, where we feel like, and I think it's, it's, it goes back and forth once we put it into an algorithm, and that's maybe the luck of the last 20 years, and because semiconductors scale up so much in the last mm -hmm. 20, 30 years, whatever we put into an algorithm, and I think this is where this love comes from. It can it can scale out for almost. There's almost no cost involved, right? Even if you can make something that even is so complicated now, nobody can run it like OpenAI. But in ten years from now, you can run it on your iPhone. And I think this is where all of this excitement comes from. Is that even if it's crude and it's very limited, but it's very predictable where this will go, right? So we know that an, an iPhone in ten years will have the computing power, not the intelligence, hmm. but way higher computing power than a million human brains. Just core computing power doesn't mean it can doesn't mean it can do what the brain can do, but we can use this machine power to help us with with guiding our decisions. It's narrow AI, right? There's a very narrow AI thinking. Yeah. So I think that's why all the engineers are drawn to this, right? Because there's so much from the hardware side, there's such a huge push that comes every twelve month or eighteen month. Hmm. Psychology doesn't have that, right? So psychology and, and it, it, it has the same topics people had 100 years ago, and yeah. it has the same tools. And yes, it, it, it changes to a different um, psychometrics every couple of years, but in the end, they all seem very interchangeable. Yeah, of, of, of course, it's very, uh, you know, very tempting to kind of throw money at deep learning, machine learning, um, because as you say, in some way, it's predictable. If we can have faster machines and bigger models, then, you know, they'll be better at image recognition or speech recognition or whatever. But we're also seeing, as I mentioned earlier, that you know, speech recognition over the last five years probably hasn't improved that much. 
even though yeah. we have a hundred times bigger models. You know, the technology and is 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 basically topping out, and yeah. of 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 what it can do. Now, of course, as you say, if you can have the power of, you know, the GPT three uh, model uh, on your phone. Um, the, you know, there, there are certainly things that you can do that we, we can't dream of doing, doing today. But is it intelligence? Is it, you know, the kind of intelligence that we want that can actually, um, you know, solve general problems, human level intelligence? And uh, no, I don't, you know, I, I don't see that. So in a, in a way, a lot of effort is being wasted going down that path when we should really be saying, what do we really need for intelligence? But that's much harder than scaling up an existing idea. You know, yeah, so of course. For, for, for VCs to put money at it, for you know, people, if we, can, you know, if we can publish a paper and we can show the accuracy has gone from 92.3% to 94.1%, you know, then, hey, it's something we can publish and we can, we can get our PhD on, on that, you know, and kind of yeah, I think feel, people, feel we're making pro progress, you know? Yeah, you know, that's how the economy works. But I think people are having this hope, and I don't I have no idea if that's justified. They have this hope that maybe it's an emergent property, that once we build enough models and we have enough sub-models and sub-models of the mind, yeah. that one day it will be emerging. This big model, you know, what we talk about is basically we have those... Yeah. We have an image recognition model that obviously is separate from our neocortex, from, yeah. the, from the more abstract thinking. But that's, that but that's we'll, just once wish, you put them all just, together. That's just wishful thinking. I don't think there's any <laughs> evidence. Yeah, there's any evidence. It is. I, I agree. Mean, yeah. So uh, you know, I mean, wishful thinking doesn't make it so. You know, I, I mean, there are people who now argue that you know, yes, a million monkeys can write Shakespeare, and you know, and then they they cherry pick and say, hey, here's this big statistical model that wrote something that human people human judges couldn't tell the difference between shakespeare and uh and that but we can see it on twitter it's it's basically written yeah. by ai well yes yeah. the tweets are not written by ai but the way right. we see them distributing through the graph and that's you know distribution is everything not just the content because the content is very similar many 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 different accounts it's basically all ai and facebook is written by ai not right. the, the letters itself but the distribution is done by ai so it's working every day already. I don't know if it's beneficial to humanity, but they, right. it's it's a task that was was right. Was but you know, if 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 you if you're actually looking at sp specific problems that we want uh, want to to solve in the real world that we need, you know, humans for. I mean, yeah. I have a lot of experience in the uh, you know customer support area in, in call centers and so on. Um, you know, talking to people, solving real problems. And, you know, these, these models don't get you very far at all. I mean, they, you know, they... Yeah. I, I'm with you. When, when I see chatbots, the first thing I type is agent, please. And sometimes it's immediately <laughs> recognized and then you actually get an agent. But very often right. it's just you get right. 15 other questions. Because, you know, the, the, reason, the reason is you really require reasoning in the system. You require deep understanding of, of what, what the person is saying. And you understand you require real-time learning. And what I mean by that, if I, at the beginning of my conversation, if I say, um, you know, my, my sister is moving to Oregon next month, you know, very simple for a human. I mean, it's like a trivial sentence, you know, but I've given you three facts or maybe four facts. Um, yeah. That information needs to be integrated, needs to be understood. It needs to be integrated into your, your world model. And, yes. you know, 
three sentences later, you expect the person that you're talking to to have that information and to use that information. And, you know, the uh, deep learning systems uh, basically don't operate. They really read only models. You know, you build the model and essentially it's a read only model. They can't yeah. learn. They can't reason. And so to, to do things in, in the real world uh, on, on, you know, problem solving or you want um, you want something to autonomously basically uh, solve problems, do tasks or whatever, they can't. How do you solve this with, with the current chatbot? Um, and that's, that's one of the things I think your, your latest company works on. How do they get an understanding about what someone wants in a specific context? And I think the context right. is really important too, the time yeah. of day, where the customer comes from, right. um, maybe also what product that customer is exposed to. Right. How, what are the models that, that work for you currently? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked me about this because obviously that's what's consuming uh, my sort of, that's my, my day job and has been for the last, uh, you know, 15 years or so. Um, so our, the, the, the approach that we use is basically the third wave of AI is the cognitive uh, architecture. Um, and the slogan for our current company is basically chatbot with a brain. So there are thousands of chatbots out there but none of them have a brain. Basically, the current approach for chatbots is you use two technologies, you use first wave and second wave. The second wave is for intent uh, identification. Um, so basically, if you, you know, use Siri or Alexa, it's a good example of, of how that, that works, basically, is you can say blah, 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 weather, um, and, you know, it'll give you the weather report. But you can also say, I hate Uber, don't ever give me Uber again, and it'll trigger the Uber app, you know, because it yeah. basically does pattern matching, and it, it's puts, it selects one of 100 or 1,000 slots of what your yeah. intent is. So that's the intent identification, which is kind of a one-shot thing. It doesn't take context into account, doesn't take into account what you said before, what you may know, what you've done before. It simply is, this is the utterance, that's therefore it triggers the response. And then the second part of it is first wave technology where somebody then writes a little flowchart type program um, to basically say, okay, where do you want to go? How many people are going and do you want Uber X? And that's yeah. basically how all chatbots work. They don't yeah. have a brain. If then, yeah, you know, yeah. that's the if they, if they work well, yes, yeah. <laughs> by their standards. Yeah. So our approach is we have a cognitive engine in the background that basically has a whole ontology of real-world um, entities. It, you know, it, it basically has background knowledge, has common sense knowledge of places and people and times and, you know, and, and things like that. So when it, it hears something, it Im immediately integrates what it's heard, the new knowledge, into that model of the world, into that knowledge graph. And it can then reason about things. Does this make sense? Do I understand it? Is there an ambiguity that I need to clarify? So you have this reasoning engine that, that is really driving the conversation. So that's why we call it chatbot with a brain. And now the, when we talk about the brain, we are nowhere near human level intelligence, but we believe fundamentally the architecture is the right architecture to get us you know, closer and closer to human level intelligence, a system yeah. that has deep understanding, can learn interactively and can reason and, you know, then act on, on that reasoning. Is it reasonable to have an 
an expectation of a, of a conversation with that chatbot, right? So when, when the most chatbots I use, when I have to, I feel like there is, and it's described as you just did, it's, it's, it's an if-then algorithm. You type in a few keywords and it will come up either with a knowledge base and it comes up with certain helpful links. But I typically feel once I reach that case, I want to interact with someone, I already screened through the documentation. I did a couple of Google searches and it didn't get me anywhere. Otherwise, I wouldn't use the chatbot right. because I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of other people's resources. Right? I don't want to waste right. them. So I don't call my bank to get my balance, for instance. I call them and right. have an actual problem. I see the balance when I log into right. a website because that would be my preferred route. And I think most people are like that. Is is that a real conversation? So, well, let's let's do. Let the, I want to do an example, but obviously it's, it's very very specific to each use case. But let's do. I want a, an example in the travel industry. I want to change my flight. Right, I have trouble with that flight. Say the airline has right. already tells me about a specific delay. I want to change it. And I just want to know the options that are out there. Is that right. something that a chatbot could do in a, in a conversation that looks like, from my point of view, like there's a real agent on the other side? Yes, absolutely, and and that's exactly what what we're doing. Um, I mean, on our website, we we have uh, an example of comparing uh, a chatbot with a brain. You know, ours is called Igo, uh, company Igo.ai. Um, com comparing, and we really use Alexa. Have try and have a conversation with Alexa, and then we use uh, our Igo brain connected to a, 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 a Alexa type microphone speaker. And you can see the difference between learning, remembering, reasoning, what you, know, what you would expect. So yeah. absolutely, what, you, what you're talking about is to have a real conversation. Now, the, the difficulty is, and why we are nowhere near human level intelligence, well, there are several reasons, but one of the key reasons is we as humans just have an incredible amount of common sense knowledge that we just acquire yeah. by living in the real world, you know. Uh, you know, we know the size of a suitcase or what you can take on board or what you can't take on board, you know, or uh, yeah. whether animals can go on, on a flight or not, or what happens when it rains or, you know, just a huge amount of information. So to give an AI all of that background information that you might need for a particular conversation is really, really hard. And then to be able to, to use that. So right now, uh, to, to have meaningful conversations, we need to make sure that we've taught the system, we've given it the ontology, the background information that hopefully covers enough of the scenarios of what you're trying to do. So, you know, if it's, I, I mean, we, we're working with financial institutions, for example, we're working with healthcare, you know, for diabetes management or so on. But for example, uh, to reset your password in a, in, in, you know, for the bank or for you know, some critical thing, it actually on average takes people 30 minutes to achieve that yeah. you know, when, they, when they, they, they're struggling because of the authentication difficulties and so on. And you know, we'll send you a key, I didn't receive it, you know, and uh, oh, I'm... It's extremely I'm, cumbersome. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, know it's, it's like I'm using, a two-factor. You're using the wrong browser. What computer are you using? You know, it's not working on my system and, and so on. So to give it the right kind of background information that, that's required there of, you know, what are computers? What's a laptop? You know, I'm doing it on my phone. What is an Android, an iPhone? I have an old model, you know, just to give it that 
en enough of that background information. And then, of course, you have to integrate it with the company's back backend system. You know, so you have to have the APIs, the customer information. So to build these systems is obviously not non-trivial. You know, it's not just a kind of a, a, a plug and play. But the beauty of it is once you have the right architecture, you have a brain, you can then expand and just keep adding to that, that brain. And that's basically the approach that we have is we have a core knowledge in our brain that we use for all conversations. That's, you know, how to start a conversation, how to greet somebody to end a conversation, how to disambiguate. It knows about people, places, and so on. So that's a common core knowledge. And we keep increasing that and make the system, you know, uh, have a bigger and bigger coverage and be more intelligent. But then for a given application, you know, whether it's for, for airline rebooking or airline or hotel or, as I say, diabetes management or banking or helping somebody buy, buy a gift, um, uh, for that, we, we then have to teach that specific domain knowledge to be able to handle that, uh, that domain. And then in yeah. addition to it, the, the, each individual brain uh, also learns specific customers' information. So if you've called us Igo before and you've spoken to Igo before, Igo will actually remember what what you said, you know, that you canceled your flight or you had to delay the flight, you know, or that you're moving from this town, that town, or you, you know, you you always want the middle seat or whatever, you know. Uh, it will then remember the previous conversations it had with you, which of course is much better than if you call into a call center because you're not you're not going to be talking to the same person, or if you, even if you do, they're not going to remember the, the conversation yeah. they had before. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of this classic problem, right? So when, when the first wave of outsourcing hit about 20, 30 years ago, we realized we, we, we spoke to someone on the other side of the world. Actually, we didn't really realize that initially because the companies tried to hide that fact. Um, right. Because they didn't want to make that very visible. Should be, they should be, be trained Indian um, right. call center agents with American accents. But we realized, even if the accent is perfect, these are highly smart people. They don't have the cultural knowledge that we have. Like a lot of words are different, but also they mean different things. Even if if, if the word is the same, right? Even if all right. the words are perfect, they mean different things. It's much harder to explain something that anyone would would know within a minute or two to someone who's never been to America. It just doesn't have that that sphere yeah, of experience. Sure. Or, or, or references and, like the lake the lake is just one or whatever. Yeah, then, you know, or there's what, a storm there's a storm in the mid east here yeah, in the in the Midwest or something, you know. That. Right. And but what we did is either train them harder or go back onshore, which I think it's probably a mix what, what most companies have done. Right. But how, how does the algorithm learn? I'm curious. Is it can you just listen to, to other conversations? Um, or do you have to go into specific models, a bit like an if-then model, where you say, well, this is something that we feel is relevant to the specific application. So we kind of make a specific case for it. So there's a human designer, again, that actually makes that decision. Or does the system learn from other existing cases that it looked at that were successful, and then it reads out the ones that were unsuccessful? Yeah. That, that's actually a very important question. And um, unfortunately, it can't just automatically learn from other conversations. I mean, you know, the, the, the problem is it's, a, it's kind of a bootstrapping uh, prop, problem. The system isn't smart enough to know what was a good conversation and what wasn't a good conversation or what is relevant 
in one conversation may not be relevant in another conversation. So if you had the system learn automatically, um, it, it, it would just degenerate very quickly. And we've seen that with some chatbots that, you know, they've, they've tried self-learning. Self so you really need a human in the loop at this point in time to, to it, it's a bit like, you know, the analogy of kids, you know, you have small kids running around. If they just learn from each other without adult supervision, be pretty chaotic pretty quickly. So, um, so I don't know. Fact, <laughs> I don't know. You know, there used to be the kibbutzes that were, were part of the idea was is that you, you basically wouldn't grow up with your children. They would grow up with some with a caretaker, right? But there were like 100 kids and two caretakers. And then you would visit them once a month. Um, but they, these kids also grew up fine, right? They didn't become radicals. I mean, some of them maybe are radicals, but yeah. they, 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 they socialized well and they, they learned what was needed to learn about the real world sooner or later. Which mm -hmm. is kind of stunning, but even growing up mostly with with peers of the same age. Yeah, but uh, mostly, I'm I'm sure, you know, they, they weren't just some grown-ups were involved for sure. Right, yes, right. yes. Um, and 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 of course, our AI is a level that we have, you know, even with with our uh, with our uh, architecture and that we we're not at the level of you know a, a young child of general understanding again because of this this lack of um general knowledge of growing up in the world you know it's just uh, I, the ai's don't have that so the interesting fact is that two-thirds of our staff in the company are actually not programmers they are linguists and cognitive psychologists that yeah. teach this teach the system uh, the knowledge and basically then as we get feedback from actual use cases, we see what additional knowledge do we need to teach it. But it, it, at this stage, it needs to be curated. Um, now, but, at some point, the system yeah. will will become smart enough where it can learn. But then we're getting very close to what, what you were talking about alluding to earlier, where the system can basically start improving itself, first at the software level and then yeah. eventually uh, at you know, the architecture and hardware level. Yeah, once that model of the real world, right, there's all these 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 hidden knowledge, uh, containers of knowledge, once they are mapped out, so to speak, by, by, by just a few, a few hundred, maybe a few thousand um, AIs, then every single AI in the world has that model already. Now, they can choose to improve on it or they can just work with what they have. But it's very different than the humans, right? We have to go through this process all the time and it's, it's it's a strength to one extent where the beats all somewhat unique, but it also takes a lot of time that we could have used for something else. So that's what I talked about earlier. If if we get this model to to learn on its own autonomously, then it will quickly scale beyond human abilities in just you could say a matter of years, right? Right. Um, yes, I mean, that, that is sort of, you know, ultimately my dream and motivation is that we have AIs that are smart enough to help us solve the really hard problems that we, we have, um, you know, whether, whether it's, um, you know, pollution or energy uh, or, you know, poverty or, um, you know, disease, death, um, having, you know, as you say, one PhD level researcher trained uh, in like say pick cancer research, just something that everyone is familiar with. You can now clone that and suddenly have a million PhD level researchers that have all the same 
knowledge as a starting point and they can go off in you know different directions and yeah. they'll also be able to communicate with each other much more easily than human researchers can and they won't have their egos get in the way either uh, they'll have instantaneous access to all the information on the internet have photographic memory so the 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 progress we can make in and and uh, you know just many areas of of research is just fantastic and yeah. then i also see us having these ais as personal assistants and that would be like a little angel on our shoulder you know that can give us advice and um help us avoid some of the worst mis mistakes that we make you know yeah yeah i find that fascinating i always and it gets you know into these all these topics once machines get their role they really give them emotions or will they give themselves emotions because emotions obviously work very well if you can't solve for all the variables in your equations like if you don't if you think about the future and there's so many things out there what what basic drivers should you have that are irrespective from these really difficult questions and it, it goes into another topic and you, you i don't know if you, you've thought about that i sometimes feel the people who, who are depressed, clinical, clinically depressed, they are actually not the sick ones. They are the ones who are realists, right? So we all get into this world. It's basically suffering. Um, there's short moments of joy, but they're given by mostly by our limbic system. There's some, some serotonin. We all going to go into this, you know, the fight and we just don't know how it's going to happen. And the people who are joyful and optimistic and want to change the world, people like us, they're actually the crazy people. We're just descendants from a lot of crazy people because we are, we are not rational, we are not realistic, we are, we are exuberantly too positive. And I wonder if, if a machine intelligence will, will, will be on the same path or will it, it, it cannot just be really realistic. Right? If there's a, there's, a, there's a finite lifespan for an individual, if you know about that, and we can't talk to to animals because they don't know that but if they would know that there's a death coming it's it's not the best news right it's it's when you rationally think about it well why would you use that life to do something great i think it's it's irrational i feel but it's better for us right it's it's definitely a better survival strategy uh well a couple of things uh first of all i don't think it's irrational uh, in fact i would argue the opposite i think it's totally rational even knowing that you have a limited lifespan uh, to make the best of it and enjoy it to optimize life. You know, in fact, my personal website is optimal.org. Um, yeah. So I, I think having, uh, having an optimism and, and enjoying life, um, but, you know, having an optimism, a pro, sort of a proactive, a dynamic optimism that you don't just, you know, aren't just optimistic hoping or believing that things will get better, but you actually actively, uh, you, you know, pursue positive things in life. So you, you do what you can to, um, to realize that optimistic view that you have. And to me, that is the sane and rational way to, to, to live life. Um, so I, I, I couldn't come to the conclusion that, you know, being depressed and I mean, then, the logical thing is that you should probably put a bullet through your head, you know, if you but want think to. think about all the philosophers. Um, basically, every grand philosopher was a hermit, deeply depressed, died early. Um, there's exceptions, right? It's not everyone, but everyone who was on that level, Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, did this endless list. They're all, they're, we would say crazy, but they were all clinically depressed. Not all, 99% of them. Yeah. It can okay. be a coincidence, I feel. 
or, or maybe just it, they were chosen, right? Because maybe they were depressed. That's the only thing they could, they could, they could excel at. You could, you could make that argument, maybe. But I, I keep well, thinking uh, that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very optimistic person. That I'm just yeah. trying to say. So maybe also don't, I don't. Maybe I also don't resonate very well with, uh, or I don't think I got very much out of those philosophers. Um, okay. Now, well. <laughs> maybe they sell sell well. I mean, Bertrand Russell yeah. is one of my my favorite philosophers, and um, you know, he 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 lived a ripe ripe old age, and I and I think he certainly didn't go through life being depressed, as far as I could tell. Um, so, um, Ayn Rand was also a philosopher that uh, I think I got a lot of inspiration from, and you know, very yeah. very positive view of what what we should achieve as can achieve and should achieve as humans. But I, I do want to just um, uh, remark quickly on, you know, you say that uh, we know as a fact that we're going to die. Um, well, there are people working on extend, uh, extending life very significantly, making indefinite yeah. lifespans. So even that isn't, you know, like death and taxes are the two sure things in life. Well, I think both of them could po po probably be dealt with uh, with human ingenuity. It's time for it. It's time for it. Yes, we had Aubrey de Grey on. You know, he and yeah. David Sinclair, they're kind of spearheading this effort right now. And he was extremely confident that this is something that's going to happen in the next 15 to 20 years. Yeah. Um, singularity. I want to ask you about the singularity. Do you think it's going to happen? Do you think it's going to happen? 2038, Ray, Ray is very, very specific um, by, um, by now. And how do you think it's going to look like? Obviously, we call it singularity because it's hard to predict. But what do you feel if it happens? How will it look like? Yeah. So, as I mentioned earlier, I you know you you you, you said that when computers can uh, design themselves or improve themselves, um, then clearly we'll see an explosion of of that artificial intelligence. I don't see any reason why that wouldn't happen. Um, I mean, if we can build machines that can, uh, you know, give comprehensive customer support, you know, and really at human level of deep understanding, there's no reason why we couldn't have computers that can be researchers. And if they can be researchers, they can be engineers. And in fact, I, I kind of half jokingly say, you know, and people ask me how, how you know, how long do I want to continue and running AI companies and so on, I say, well, when my AI is smarter than me, when it'll take my job, then I'll, I'll basically stop doing this. And it can happen one of two ways. Either I can get dumber and dumber, or the AI can get smarter and smarter. So whenever we have that uh, crossover. So yes, I believe computers will become software engineers. They will become hardware engineers. And basically, they will be able to understand their own architecture and will be able to d improve on that architecture. And they'll be able to do that at, in a, at a much faster cadence than, than humans can and iterate much quicker. Yeah. So that to me is a singularity when, uh, when computers reach a truly human level intelligence at a general, in a general level, not at a narrow level, and we'll see that explosion. Now, how that will change humanity, I mean, one of the things that if you ask most people, would they like to win the lottery? There are not many people who will say, no, I wouldn't. Um, 
in fact, I don't know if anybody would, would say that unless they've already won the lottery and it ruined their lives, you know. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, that's really where, where what the singularity will bring. We will no longer have to work. And so we all win the lottery, right? We all, we all win the lottery. We basically yeah. will be, we'll, we'll have, you know, it's actually an interesting analogy, you know, we talk I think about Ray, Ray should sell it this way that we all going to win the lottery and live forever. I think it would be it would be very convincing. Yeah, in yeah, indefinite lifespans. We live for as long as we want to live. You know, it's kind of an interesting analogy. We talk about somebody they live like a king. You know yeah. now, but we go back and see how kings really lived. You know, hundreds it's of years pretty. ago. Yeah, it's not, not very good. We we live like kings, much better yeah. than kings now. You know. Yeah. And so you go forward to having this radical abundance where, you know, really the material needs that we have become trivial to, to, to provide for every, everyone. Then, of course, the focus changes on how do we have, have a meaningful existence? What do we want to do with our lives? But again, there, AI can help us because we'll have AIs that are better psychologists than human psychologists that can help us um, you know, decide what we want to do with our lives as, as, as humans. Um, yeah. So I see that as a very, very positive future uh, with, with, with AI, but it will be very different. And people who obviously resist change um, will struggle with that. And then the question is, can those people who don't want to change, can they continue in sort of more or less the same life that they're having now and perhaps perhaps that's the answer i don't know you know like the amish live you know in, well they live very i think they live very well right so they, they they certainly have a different living standard but they certainly live well in the sense of their own happiness at least seen seen from the yeah. outside we, we only to so, an extent know what's going on on the inside yeah. so whether we'll have people that want to just kind of be frozen in sort of 21st century life but you know, not having, not really having to worry about, you know, material comforts um, so much. I, I don't know. Of course, there's a problem of addiction, but again, we'll have AI psychologists that help us. You know, gaming addiction and and and, and things. Like yeah, it's that. kind of hard to say where our role in this, right? So because it it seems like whatever we are good at, sooner or later we will teach AI to be good at this too. And then maybe there will be this one designer left, right? So like like you just said, you design so many of those AI babies, so to speak, but sooner or later, these students will outgrow the master. Correct. And then, well, the master is not needed anymore, right? So right. This, this generation of humans will become it might be pretty lonely, right? Because the humans are not really needed in their physical appearance and in their limited physical experience, they're not really needed anymore. That's, I think, a bit of a fear. On, on one hand, we all win the lottery and we live the best life ever. We unimaginably rich compared to today, but we really don't, we are not really needed anymore. And to the other, I mean, we don't really know where we are on this planet, right? So it's kind of a, what what is a meaningful life changes all the time anyways. 500 years ago, the answer would have been completely different than what it right. is now. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, I mean, I look forward to that. There's so many things I'd like to do and like to explore um, a, apart from what, what, what I'm doing now. Um, but yes, how well we will manage with this uh, 
additional freedom that we have, uh, this radical freedom that that we'll have, will will be will be interesting. But to do you think it's in our lifetime? So it'll be in the next twenty years this massive change, or do you feel like this is going to be more like two hundred years or two thousand years? Yeah, I, uh, I always answer that question in terms of I don't think it's uh, it's a it, it's as much a question of time as a question of money. Uh, is the right money going to go into the right approaches of AI? We could have trillions of dollars, in my opinion, we could have trillions of dollars going into deep learning, machine learning, and 50 years from now, we still wouldn't, wouldn't have general AI. Yeah. Uh, you know, can we, can we tear ourselves away? Can we, can we go, you know, go back and, and really say, what do we need for intelligence and start focusing on that and building systems that have intelligence, given the right kind of effort, I, I believe we can have human level AI in uh, definitely less than 20 years. That's very optimistic. That, that, that's great. It's very interesting that you say that very few people who come on the podcast who are generally very optimistic about narrow AI, um, kind of because it worked so well the last 10 years, but very pessimistic in any approach about human level AI. It's more like five, six hundred thousand years away. That's kind of seems to sentiment for most people on the podcast. Yeah, of course, if, if you don't understand what the problem is with the, the current AIs, you can see the limitations. Uh, you can yeah. see there is no real intelligence. I think people sense it, you know, even with the magical things that deep learning, machine yeah. learning can do, people still feel, no, this isn't, there's nobody at home. You know, this, this isn't real, of course. Yeah. real intelligence. And if you don't understand why that is, uh, you could easily say, well, we have no idea. It could be hundreds or thousands of years away before we crack it. But if you actually understand what the problem is with the current approach, you know, that we need a third wave approach, then you can say, okay, what do we know? What don't we know? What can we do? What can't we do? You know, and I now have 20 years of hands-on experience in building these systems with a relatively small team. Well, very small team, you know, I mean, yes. It's, Google, uh, Amazon, I believe, has 10,000 people working on Alexa, I was told. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, the mind boggles. You know, and, you know we have yeah. a team, we, we now have a team of 25 people, and typically we've had yeah. like 10 people. But this is where innovation comes from. Mine is the smaller teams. Um, once you're that big, it's, it's almost impossible to get real innovation to work. Sometimes you get lucky, um, but it's really, yeah. really rare. Um, so... What do you think is the limiting factor? Because money usually follows innovation, right? So obviously it takes a while to scale up and get critical mass, but the, the, the VC dollars sooner or later arrive at the most innovative spareheads in this, in this whole economy. Do you think it's really just money? So like in five years from now, there's going to be trillions in a third wave AI approach or well, what's really stopping us? Or is it the engineers that have to rethink? Yeah. So, I mean, VC money follows trends typically, you know, um, uh, I mean, they jump, they, they jump on, they jump on bandwagons, you know, and yes, it's, sure. and it's short term thinking. So, um, so it's, I, I don't know where the best funding is. Obviously, we ourselves have had a lot of experience in talking to different people that, you know, want to fund it, but typically VCs and, and investors are always just, they may, they may not ask the question, but the question is always, what's your exit? You know, basically, when am I, I going to cash out? And with that kind of mindset, you can't build fundamentally new technology. Um, 
you know, it's um, it, it's you, you really need need more of a vision, especially if it's something as hard as like what Aubrey de Grey is trying to do or what we are trying to do is to to build human level in, in intelligence. So I, th I think it will come to a point where the third wave of AI will uh, will have enough examples, real world examples of where it's actually working, solving problems that you can't solve with other technology. And we we believe we're on the cusp of that. And we we, we do think then uh, that, you know, there will be kind of a, um, a an explosion of interest in, in this field. But it, you know, at the moment, VCs ask their AI experts to, you know, look at a system and their AI experts are all deep learning, machine learning experts. That's yeah. the only thing they know. And that's the only thing they can judge things by. So, uh, yeah, the limiting factor right now is um, the number of people working in on the third wave. It's minimal. There's hardly anybody working on it. And yep. um, you just need some more people. You don't need, you know, I don't think you need hundreds of thousands of people. You don't need trillions of dollars. But you need more than a dozen people working on it. Yeah. Yeah, Aubrey de Grey told me how difficult it was for him to initially raise funding because it seemed so outlandish. It seemed so, we've heard this right. all before, and uh, why should we give you money? And it, he, he says, you know, it's really changed the last two or three years. Money is pouring in almost too much. They don't, some, some applications are so advanced, they don't really need that much money. But he felt like his fundraising target, you know, obviously keeps changing. And once his industry actually starts to work, it will all change again. But you can do a lot with like a few billion dollars. You, you can you can change how long we live, which is a huge target. But he said with 10, 20, 30 million billion dollars, that's enough to really drive it to almost you know practical, not just practical, but in a sense of you won't have a, 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 a drug that will, will will be able to go to market. You need a little more money yeah. maybe for this, but generally this is enough money to really research that subject and to hopefully bring it to fruition. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that and seems to be doable, right? The raising a billion dollars, given how much we spend on uh, infrastructure or anything these days, a billion dollars seems like right, a decent right. fundraising card. Right. But but people who can write billion dollar checks, you know, would need to understand that or would need to come to the conclusion that the third wave is is to invest. Is, is it's imminent. Right yes. To invest. And, yeah. And then, of course, even if they believe in a third wave, uh, I mean, billions of dollars have actually been thrown at this before by DARPA and different government organizations. Yeah. But, you know, they're incredibly inefficient, of course, because they end up giving, you know, 30, 30 million to this university, 20 million to that university. And, you know, the, the money just disappears in administration and whatever projects they have. Um, yeah. But but yes, it's it. Uh, I I would agree. Uh, a, f a few billion dollars absolutely would, uh, in in my mind, unquestionably would would put us to, to a point where we can see yes, this third wave, the cognitive architecture approach, is really um, you know going to to get us somewhere. Um, but it's it, you know it's getting getting that point. I mean, uh, Google DeepMind has already spent um, several billion of dollars. You know, they have, I think they're burning through 600 million a year or something. Yeah. Um, haven't, I haven't actually seen much output from them at all in the last few years. Um, so yeah. I, I don't know 
I don't know what, what it's kind of like what, what we thought of AI in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, right? So it, it makes these big jumps and it, something works and then it's really quiet for a long time. You're like, man, do we have to give up on this? And then, right. well, now it's deep learning, right? It came out of nowhere. Right, right. But um, yeah, deep learning is sort of sucking all the oxygen out of the air, you know, in terms yeah. of any other approaches. And I can give you one uh, anecdotal example yeah. here. We had a brilliant... Uh, intern from Germany work on our project and um, then he went back to Germany to do his PhD and now he was totally sold on the idea of third wave uh, uh, you know cognitive architecture approach he couldn't find a sponsor for it so he ended up doing his PhD in deep learning machine learning so here's another <laughs> researcher that could have moved the technology forward he's lost now because he's not going to get it you know what's where's he going to work or what's he going to, if, if he stays in, uh, in academia, he's going to teach deep learning, machine learning. If he goes working for a company, he'll be working on deep learning, machine learning, you know. So yeah. it's, uh, it, it really is sucking. It's not good to be ahead of your time. I, right. I, I noticed that too. It's, it's very tempting sometimes and it's great to be right, but it's, it's not, well, you, you, you're going to be more, you're going to define yourself more like an artist. You, as an entrepreneur, it's really hard because you just need that buy-in, right? There needs to be a marketplace that wants your product or as someone who, who's looking for a job. Um, if you're fundraising, if you're too far away from a future market, there's just not much you can do. You can only wait and hope that it takes off in five years and then you're in that, in that sweet yeah. spot. So for, fortunately now in our commercial company, uh, we are now at a point where we have a product you know, a chatbot with a brain. We have the architecture, we have the infrastructure, we have customers, yeah. we have references. In fact, my previous company has now been in uh, operation with the first generation of this technology has now been in operation uh, and, and you know, profitable. Uh, it's been in operation since 2008. Uh, so yeah. we, have a, we have a lot of experience at companies called Smart Action, and that's in automating phone calls, basically, in the call center. Uh, my, my new company, iGo.ai, is focusing on chatbots, uh, on, on text interactions. And uh, so we are fortunate in the, in, in, uh, where we now at a point where we are solving real problems in, in the real world and, you know, generating value. And so we see that uh, we, we, we don't just have to kind of, you know, be in our shell and do our research and hope that the time will come, you know, or yeah. consider us, ourselves artists. Well, I think humanity, um, humanity deserves to, yeah. to, to get where we, you know, where we pointed at earlier, that we'll, we'll be there in less than 20 years at a, at a level where we feel we can recruit AIs, right? So instead of 9 billion people with very, very different profile, but we, we get to 100 billion individual intelligences that can help us solve the problems that we have and that can scale further on. So we need free energy to get to, to, to other stars, right? So we're almost free energy and massive amounts of energy and we right. haven't solved it in the last, so we haven't made a lot of progress in the last 50, 60 years. So I hope you're right. I hope we're going to see this in less than 20 years and I hope this third wave AI will make a lot of progress in the next couple of years. Peter, thanks for being on the podcast. That was awesome. Thanks for the update. Great. Okay. Well, thanks for I having learned, me. I learned a lot. Hope we're gonna we get to talk again. Great. Thank you. Bye. Yeah. Thank you. Take it easy. Bye bye.